Welcome, and thank you for tuning into the Monroe College True Crime Blind Justice Podcast. The crisis of crime and mental health in our communities impacts all of us. Hear from experts on the front lines in law enforcement, law, and human services about the criminal justice and human response to crime, substance abuse, and mental illness. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Monroe College True Crime Blind Justice Podcast. My name is Dr. Paul Lickbrun. I am the Director of Criminal Justice Programs at Monroe College and a retired captain in the New York City Police Department. I served there for over 27 years before coming to work here at Monroe College. Today's episode is on a very important topic that affects our families, our communities, and our country. We will explore the devastating impact of the wasteful gang life on our youth. I will moderate this episode. At this time, it is my pleasure to introduce our two expert panelists. And first, Professor John Small. John is the security manager for Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Jose Robertson Surgery Center. He is also an adjunct professor here at Monroe College, and he's a retired sergeant with the New York City Police Department. So thank you, John, for joining us. I also have Tom Ridges. Tom Ridges is currently a prosecutor with over 24 years of legal experience. He's part of the executive team at the Richmond County, that's Staten Island, for those of you who don't know, district attorney's office. He served in the past as the executive assistant for the district attorney. Prior to that, he worked at the Kings County, which is Brooklyn district attorney's office. And prior to that, he was a New York City police officer, and he served in a bunch of units, including the street crime unit and the emergency service unit. So I want to thank both of you gentlemen for joining us here today for this important topic. So what we're talking about is youth gangs. And I thought before we go to the questions, I just wanted to go over what exactly is a youth gang. And I looked for some definitions of it and I found different ones. But one of the ones I found was three or more youths between the ages of 11 and 21 that identify themselves by a common name, set of symbols and rules, as well as locations, and who engage in regular delinquent and criminal activities. And one thing that differentiates some of the gangs we're seeing today is they're not necessarily affiliated with nationally recognized groups. They are primarily organized around geography, and they rely around social media to facilitate their activities. So these areas, very often you'll see it around public housing projects, which are unfortunately disproportionately affected by violence. And these groups use social media to document the rivalries between these gangs and to mobilize members. And this, of course, fuels violence and expands the number of people involved. So my first question for my panelists, this is for Professor Small. Why does youth join gangs? Why do you believe that? Thank you for having me, Paul. It's uh, good to see you, Tommy, again. It's interesting. One of the reasons why I teach at Monroe College is because I enjoy, you know, the give and take, the conversations that I have with, our, with my students. So to answer that question, I'm going to give you a little bit of a conversation I had with one of my students who was an active Bloods member at the time he was taking my class. It was a freshman class. It was an introductory class. And we had a very good rapport. I didn't ask him questions about gang affiliation. I didn't ask him questions about what he was doing in the street, but because we kind of clicked, 
we would have conversations after class. We'd have conversations before class. And one day he opened up to me, Paul, and he told me that, you know, his mother died when he was very young, never knew his father. Grandparents tried their best to raise him, but they were older. And uh, he had no guidance at home. And as he put it, the streets raised him. And as he put it, one of his OGs in the neighborhood recognized that he had potential and he was very intelligent and very smart and actually recommended that he go to college and was one of the reasons why he was in Monroe College in my course. So, you know, even the characterization of the, uh, you know, the title today, right? We talk about the wasteland of gang life. You know, that's almost a mischaracterization from their perspective, right? You're talking about somebody who's coming up in a crime-ridden environment. It's dangerous. The gang, the clique was his family. And that's the way he explained it to me, you know? So why why do, do people join gangs? Why do young men click up? And they do it for the same reasons, for protection, for a sense of belonging, for, and mainly for security. And it's funny and, and good to see you as well, John. And, you know, just going back to what you gave a few moments ago, Paul, about the definition, we almost have to take a step back and look at the definition. We use the term gang as if it's all inclusive, but they've redefined themselves. A lot of these guys don't call themselves gangs. They call themselves now their sets, their crews. They use a whole different terminology. For example, when we think of gangs, we think of the the known names, the Bloods, the Crips, the Latin Kings, Trinitarios, etc. But each of these have subsets amongst themselves, and they sometimes have infighting amongst the crews belonging to the umbrella group, the, the Bloods. And why do we have people, young people joining gangs? It's a, it's a sense of belonging to something. It's a sense in search of an identity something missing that they're looking for, they're in search of. As, as John just said, a lot of times there's something missing at home. They have this belonging to someone who's showing them that you're important to us, even though they're using them. And they have that that identity that, you know what, I'm not getting the attention at home, but I'm getting the attention, although it's negative attention, for negative purposes, but I am getting the attention from the streets. And, you know, I, I saw a young lady once who talked about how when she was incarcerated, she said the streets had gotten her. And she said, whilst being incarcerated, now the streets don't have me anymore. I, and I always looked at it. You see these young people who have an issue with discipline at home, an issue with authority, but what, where do they end up? Incarcerated. And what's there? Discipline, incarceration. So you had a problem when you were at liberty with someone telling you what time to be home, what time to go to bed, rules and regulations. Then you become incarcerated. And guess what? Now someone's telling you what time to go to bed, when you can go to the bathroom, when you can use the shower, when you can have visits. Just to uh, piggyback on that, uh, Tom, and to me, it's even a little deeper than that. The way it's explained to me and, and the way, you know, for example, if you have a young person and they get involved and eventually they end up, you brought up the word incarceration, right? So they end up on, on Rikers or, or they end up in the Queens House or the Brooklyn House detention, right? The reality is you cannot survive in that environment without being affiliated, right? So 
that affiliation actually becomes your security. So, yeah, you talk about the fact that, you know, it's a game and they get used and, and all that. Yeah, that's true. But it's also true that the affiliation, it insulates and allows them to survive, particularly, you know, inside, in jail. You know, so that's another consideration as well. But we have to ask ourselves as a society, where are we failing these young men and women? And what do I mean by that? We all know the story of Yummy Sandifer in Chicago, kid who had joined the gang. He had been given orders, directions to go shoot a rival gang member, ended up shooting an innocent bystander, nine years old, and the police were looking for him. The gang that he belonged to did not think that if he got caught, he wouldn't give them up. So then they, in turn, set him up to be killed, and he was killed. It was on the cover of Time magazine, this 14-year-old who was executed, belonging in that gang life, that street culture, etc. Where are we at? I always feel like before these young men get to the criminal justice system, there's plenty of blame to go around, that we as a society have failed them, whether it's the education system, whether it's social service agencies, whether it's, you know, even the neighborhood, family. When I grew up, there was a saying, it took a village. We somehow have gotten away from that belief that everybody mm-hmm. raises the child. I agree. And, and you know, Tom and, and uh, Paul, this is one of the main reasons I tell my students, Dean Harrison, this is one of the main reasons why I teach. My wife and I, of 36 years, have been blessed to have five children. I've raised four sons in New York. One's a doctor, one's a lawyer, one's uh, uh, pursuing his master's degree, one's in Harvard right now pursuing an education degree. So as a consequence of how tremendously I've been blessed in my personal life and with my family, this is one of the reasons why I teach. It gives me an opportunity to reach out to young people who look like they could be my sons or my daughters and, you know, interject positivity into their life in some small way. This is the reason why I do it. You know, when you ask yourself, you know, why am I so blessed or or what would be your response to being blessed the way I know I am? Well, the response is you have to give back. So you talk about, you know, how we failed our youth. Yeah, the breakdown of the family can be directly tied to the rise in youth gangs and, and street violence and homicides and things like that. So it's about family. It's about having people that love you, people that support you. So, you know, yeah, that that's, to me, the origin of the situation we find ourselves in now. Yeah, absolutely. I'll give you another example, John. I remember going back to my Brooklyn days. I had a case where there was a 15-year-old who committed a gunpoint robbery of a 9-year-old for a bicycle. For a bicycle. And the, the part about that, notwithstanding the violent act of it, was that this 15-year-old was able to get his hands on a gun but had to use that gun to get a bicycle. It was easier for the 15-year-old to get a gun than a bicycle. And that's when I said, what is wrong with our society where a 15-year-old can get a gun but got to use the gun to get a bicycle? Absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. So how do we reduce the number of youths who join gangs? How do we go about doing that? It's got to be options. There's got to be options. Um, I'm happy to say that in addition to four sons, I have three grandsons. And I'm part of an organization in Southeast Queens called Whose House Ballers, Inc. 
right? Shout out to Coach Shake, my son, Coach James. Uh, we have approximately 150 uh, young men and young women. And through sports, particularly teaching solid basketball skills, uh, we were able to secure location 118, uh, PS 118 Elementary School. And, you know, after school, pretty much Tuesday through Friday from 5 to 9, and on Saturdays from 10 to 4. You know, we're in there with the youth, working with them. You know, it's under a pretense and it's under, uh, you know, something that I, I like, which is sports and basketball, go Knicks. But, you know, you got to connect. We got to connect with our youth. We got to connect with our youth. And they also play also in Brooklyn. You brought up Brooklyn. Shout out Coach Lloyd, Coach Gary, Coach Juan over at St. John's Rec, Brooklyn Ballers. So we got to reconnect with our youth. They got to see uh, men, Tommy, like myself and like you on a regular basis, not with suit and ties on but with T-shirts and interacting with them as men, right? So to me, that, that's how we get them back. John, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, we have to first accept and understand no child is expendable. There are no acceptable losses. Absolutely. That's number one. Mm -hmm. Number two, we have to have the patience and the fortitude to not give up on any child. We have to understand that you can't arrest your way out of this situation. It's not about the arrest. We have to come up with, again, when I was growing up, you know, people laughed at programs like you're talking about midnight basketball. People mocked it. Oh, you know, then there are like now they have programs like Saturday Night Lights where it gives these kids places to go, something to do. You talk about your experiences over the summer. I celebrated my high school baseball coach's 80th birthday. Wow. And, and again, him, I always say, when he says, oh, you've done great. I said, I've done great because you were there. You did not give up on That's it. Right. He took a bunch of kids that nobody else, you know, didn't want. And he was that father figure. He taught us. I always say, coach, you taught us baseball, but you taught us life. The lessons you taught us on the field were great, but the ones you taught us about off the field was even better. I graduated high school in 1983. So that was 30, well, 40 years ago now, 40 years ago, and I'm going back to my high school baseball coach's 80th birthday. So like you said, it's about the influences. They do need to see positive role models. We need to get back into their lives and let them know that, you know what, it's not just on television. You can see guys like Tom Ridges, John Small, and guess what? That can be you because we're wearing a suit and tie now, but we didn't always wear a suit and tie. <laughs> <laughs> You know, Absolutely. we wore the sneakers and the, and the sweatpants and, the, you know, the T-shirts. Yeah, come on down any Saturday morning from 9 to about 2 p.m. St. John's Rec in Brooklyn. You will see, you know, two, three hundred kids on any given Saturday morning afternoon all together in a positive environment with parents and, and with, you know, aspiring college ball players, aspiring professional ball players. So absolutely. Absolutely, Tommy. I agree with you 100 percent. Yeah, and I think, uh, Tom, it's amazing what an effect that had on you. And you're talking about this so many, so many years later. And I guess a lot of people think it's a baseball game. What does that mean? You know, a basketball game, what does that mean? It's nothing. But obviously, you, you see the effect that it, in fact, had on you. And I think will have on others. So another thing I wanted to ask you gentlemen about is one of the programs that's come to New York from Chicago is Violence Interrupters. And for those of our audience who aren't familiar with what these groups are, these are formerly incarcerated people, formerly gang members who go out into the community and try to stop the spread of violence. 
So what's your opinion? Do you think that these groups or these programs will help reduce the amount of our youth that are in gangs? I'm a firm believer in that, you know what, you throw everything at the problem. You can't eliminate any options. We have such programs like that on Staten Island. True to Life is one of those violence interrupter programs. Because again, I've, I've said it, I've taken groups to state prisons. And I've said to those that were incarcerated at the time, give me something that I can take back to the communities. Because when I try to talk to them, they'll say, you don't know what it's like. You don't understand. So when that message is coming from someone that more resembles them or they think do understand, it has more meaning. Tom Ridges can say it all day and they'll be like, oh, no, no. You know, they think that, you know, they don't realize that I grew up in the Sumner Projects or I grew up in Bed-Stuy and they think that I was somehow born into the suit, like I said. But when it's coming from someone like these violence interrupters who, you know, have the street cred that maybe a Tom Ridges doesn't have in their mind, the message gets to them. I don't care how we get the message to them, whether it's on social media, whether it's through some kind of gaming app or whatever, violence interrupters, however we can get the message to them. We need to get the message to them that their lives are important. They need to take hold of their lives, that we care about them. We love them. We don't want to see them become a statistic. You know, I got a lot of friends that I grew up with that, and I'm sure John does as well, who became statistics. They, you know, they made turns that John and I didn't make, and they either became incarcerated or they became addicted to a drug, or unfortunately, they ended up in a cemetery. Absolutely. And and some of those turns, we I can't speak for you, Tom. I took the same turns, but by the grace of God, his mercy and his grace, I was allowed to survive it, whereas some of them didn't. And I'm not taking credit for that. I thank God for his grace. Absolutely. So, Tom, for you, what is the Staten Island DA's office doing to reduce gang violence? Well, again, we do work with the violence interrupters. We have alternative to incarceration programs because, again, you realize you can't arrest your way out of every situation. We, you know, we do participate in the Saturday Night Lights. We have our community partnership unit that goes out into the community and, you know, talks to young men, young women. You have to show people that you care about them. You have to let people know that they are loved. And like I said moments ago, no one is expendable. You know, there are no acceptable losses ever. You know, you can't say, oh, I saved one, but I lost four. No, my goal is to save all five. My goal is to save all five. And uh, John, I don't know, you want to, I mean, you've been retired a few years, but you want to talk about the NYPD's response to gang violence? Uh, Not really. I don't think that would be um, appropriate for me to take that stance. What what I can say, just to piggyback on a little bit of what Tommy uh, talked about, is I think as retired law enforcement in particular, Tommy, you know, we on some levels benefited from a system that stigmatize the whole generation of youth, of our youth. You know, we can talk about the crime bill. We can talk about a lot of things. We can talk about the way policing was done in our communities, you know, during the time that we won a job. But I think the main thing is we all are tasked with giving back. We're tasked with going out and making an impact where we can. Like I said, I do it through teaching. I do it through my uh, involvement with uh, organizations that 
help get a lot of our young men off the street. If you have 150 young men, you know, in a gym playing organized ball or working out, you know, those are 150 young men that are not out in the community, you know, getting involved in things that, you know, will have a negative impact on us all. So, you know, I agree with you, Tom. You know, you got to get in. You got to do what you have to do on a personal level. You know, if you can do it through your organization, that's fine, too. I'm happy to say that in, in the organization and I currently, uh, in my title, I have four of my ex-students from Monroe College on my staff here. So, you know, I think if everybody makes it personal and does something, you know, within their power, I think we can definitely get a better handle on this situation. And I agree also, you can't leave anybody behind and you can't ever give up on anybody. You know, you talked about violence interrupters and it seems similar to a scared straight program. I'm sure Tommy's, you know, knew about back in the day. But my thing is, you know, once they're already incarcerated, it's never too late. But I mean, that's such a lost opportunity. That's why when I get an opportunity to talk at a high school, to talk at a junior high school, to talk to young people at, you know, uh, elementary kids, school kids that are coming to an after, you know, school program. To me, this is where I think, you know, you, you can find the most value and you can have the most bang for the buck. That's my opinion. Well, well John, you, you are absolutely right. I mean, being incarcerated is not the end all be all. Again, you can't arrest your way out of every problem, but those that are incarcerated, we can't give up on them either. Because as I sat in a room with a bunch of incarcerated young men years ago when I was taking groups to the prisons to talk to them, they had a good point that people forget that at some point we're coming home. Right. And if you haven't invested in us and if you haven't put, you know, we, we throw that word around rehabilitation. But as I say to the students all the time, when you use those words, you also got to put your money where your mouth is. So we can talk about rehabilitation, but what are we doing to rehabilitate? So when they come home, if you haven't put that money where your mouth is, as they said to me, sitting in that room in a circle that we were sitting in, what are you going to do with us when we come home? What are you going to do? If you haven't invested in them and their future, they're going to turn back to old habits. And old habits were what created the original problems that landed them there. So you can either deal with them while they're incarcerated and provide programming and assistance and get them ready to return back to society, to re-enter society, or you can invest that same money in dealing with them once they are back in society. It's a choice. And we can't lose hope. I mean, again, we can look at the, the news and the numbers and everything else, and it can be frustrating at times, but we can't lose hope. And as John knows, because John and I lived it, we were police officers during a time when there were thousands of murders a year. There were drive-by shootings every day. You would go to work and there were four or five homicides a night. And you had precincts that were, you know, a couple of hundred murders a year. And now we're talking about a couple of hundred murders a year citywide. Any loss is one loss too many. But when you see where we were and you see where we're at, you can say we're not where we should be. We're not where we want to be, but we're not where we were. And so there's still hope and you got to keep hope because hope is all that we have until dreams arrive. So you got to keep your hope. I agree. I agree 100 percent, Tommy. And, um, 
you know, this is why, particularly as retired law enforcement, we you're right, we we served together. We also graduated from law school together. So we remember what those times were like. And unfortunately, many times when I was interacting with a young man who looked like could be my son, unfortunately, it was in a negative uh, way where you're putting handcuffs on somebody or you're, you're making an arrest, right? This is why, you know, to me, teaching is so valuable and experience, particularly for myself and for you, is because now we get to interact with same age group, same demographic, but in a much more positive way and in a much more, you know, influential way, you know, in the right direction. John, I mean, yeah, we, we both have had those conversations with parents who have lost their children because of this senseless violence out there. And again, we've heard it before that no parent should have to bury a child. That's correct. And as a homicide prosecutor for seven years, I was doing murder cases where you're looking at the age of the victim under 25. You're looking at the age of the defendant under 25. I was saying to myself, wow, if you make it to 25, you got a chance to survive this world. You're not, you're not going to the cemetery and you're not going to prison if you can just get to that 25. So where are we losing them before 25? I mean, I've had homicide cases that happened three, four o'clock in the morning and my witnesses were 13, 14 years old. And listen, I'm glad that I had the witnesses, but I'm saying to myself, what were they doing out at 13, uh, 14 years old, three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning? I can harken back to the day when, you know, when I was growing up and my mother, God rest her soul, I couldn't have walked to the house three o'clock in the morning. I couldn't have been out three o'clock in the morning. That just wasn't going to happen. So some of it I also say is on you know, again, there's plenty of blame, as I said, to go around. You know, it's a lot of times we we want and we expect the criminal justice system to solve a lot of problems. And sometimes it's almost like, though, by the time you get to the criminal justice system, there's a lot of opportunities that were there for other agencies to get involved and provide assistance before it got to the courthouse. Sometimes when it gets to the courthouse, your options are limited depending on what the charges are, what the crime is. There's a difference between that young man walking through the door of the courthouse for a shoplifting case and walking through the door of the courthouse for a murder case. So, again, the options. Are, but but when you do a after action analysis and you look at it, you'll see that maybe he was truant. Maybe there was other agencies involved where there had been complaints, you know, about the parents and the upbringing or et cetera. Maybe there were a few other incidents at school or a whole host of other reasons that you could say, we had a chance to save this individual before he got here with a murder charge. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it was said before, it takes a village. And I think that's a perfect example of what you were just talking about, where you know, three, four in the morning, there was a time when if you were out at three in the morning, your parents, you snuck out of the house, someone would tell your parents. And that's not the kind of thing you see today. Unfortunately, we've, we've changed from that. So you guys have any closing thoughts about gangs? Professor Ridges, you want to start? Well, again, my closing thought would be, as I, I've said many times during this broadcast already, is we can't give up. We can't give up on them because they are the future. You know, we can't just say, okay, we're going to just lose this generation. We have to do everything that we can, whether it's on the front end of the criminal justice system, the back end of the criminal justice system, whether it's ACS, Agency for Children's Services, whether it's, you know, teachers in school, parents, the community, the clergy, 
you know, let's not forget the clergy. We all have a role that we can play in raising these young men and women to be productive members of society. As John and I have both said, we didn't always wear suits. You know, again, we grew up in neighborhoods where we were probably cast already as a statistic. And guess what? We went against those odds. You know what? Tom Ridges didn't end up in anybody's jail, didn't end up wearing anybody's handcuffs. Tom Ridges isn't in the cemetery. You know what? Tom Ridges is giving back in many ways, whether it's through the criminal justice system, teaching at Monroe College, going around doing the different lectures that I do. I try to give back and let people know you can be Tom Ridges. You know, I love it. And uh, I agree with everything you just said, Tom. It's great to see you again. Uh, Paul, my closing thoughts would be optimism, optimism, optimism. I had the uh, pleasure uh, a couple of weeks ago to be invited to speak at the uh, Celia Cruz Bronx High School of Music Classrooms, and I was blown away, blown away by the, the just the talent, the intelligence, the enthusiasm, just the energy of those young people that I had the pleasure of speaking with on that afternoon. So, you know, my optimism is grounded on these positive experiences that I have personally with young people. So I think our future is bright. And I think that, you know, we as people who have more experience can be energized when we interact with the younger generation. And I think the younger generation, when they interact with us, can avoid a lot of pitfalls. So I'm optimistic about the future. Thank you. John, we have to let these kids know that, listen, we all make mistakes. Of course. Tom Bridges has made mistakes. And they should understand that their worst moment doesn't define them. Don't let your worst moment define you. Sometimes a setback is just an opportunity for growth and success. Sometimes the comeback is greater than the setback. Absolutely. So they need to understand that. Don't let your worst moment define you. I've been in rooms with people where they were talking to individuals that were, and, and they were people that were formerly incarcerated and they had now their doctorate. They had gone on and achieved their education. And they said, so again, the message they were saying is don't tell me about, well, oh, I've been incarcerated. So my life is over. They're like, no, I, I had one young man who had been incarcerated in three different States for over 20 years. And he talked about how, he was not going to let that define his life. Three different states, over 20 years in, and had a doctorate now and was going around, had his own business and hadn't given up. And he was telling those that were in that room, so don't come and tell me, like you can tell these guys as he was pointing to the prosecutors in the room. You might tell them you were incarcerated, so you can't do it. You can't say that to me. Absolutely. Oh, again, we have to let them know. We all make mistakes. But you know what? We get up. What is it? Every sinner has a future. Every saint has a story. <laughs> Agreed. Well said, my brother. Well said. All right. Thank you, gentlemen. This has been a fascinating discussion with great information shared on the dangers of gang life and what we as a committed community can do to support our youth. Thank you to our expert panelists for sharing their time and knowledge with us. And I invite everybody to join us for our next episode on the unrelenting pace of hate crimes in the United States. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. 
For more information on future episodes, you can follow along at Facebook at Monroe College, Instagram at Monroe College, Twitter at Monroe College. Have a great week.